Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Uh, it's Heard Tell Show. It's Friday, folks. You made it April the 8th, year of our Lord, 2022. As it continues to roll on, getting deep into April, you can feel summer coming. We're just about there. And before that, we got a weekend coming. We hope you have good plans with you and yours to enjoy it wherever you are across the street or around the world. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for joining us on Herd Tell. Got a couple stories we want to try to turn down the noise of the news cycle on, get to some good information. A couple of hot topic issues, a couple of updates. A lot going on in the world. Uh, we have a new Supreme Court justice, Kentaji Brown-Jackson, has been confirmed by the Senate. Uh, she will be the sitting junior justice on the United States Supreme Court. We'll talk about that briefly a little later on in the program. Also, uh, Truth Social, that's the Donald Trump-backed uh, platform. Devin Nunez, remember him? Used to be in Congress, lost a lawsuit to a cow. That was fake and only on Twitter. He lost to him anyway. Uh, he's got some really bonkers comments trying to rescue the failing proposition. We'll talk about that a little bit later on in the pr program. Also, uh, an amazing story. Do you remember Schindler's List, the iconic image of the girl in the red coat? Well, the actress who played the girl in the red coat has resurfaced, and she's in Poland helping Ukrainian refugees. An amazing story of human will and goodwill. We will end the program with that. Great guest today, Stephen Kent. Uh, for those of you that don't know, Stephen Kent used to be uh, head up Young Voices. Uh, he's a very good friend. He's instrumental in me actually doing programs like this. He helped talk me into doing it. Uh, good friend. I appreciate him greatly. He's got a book out about Star Wars, how the Force can fix the world. Uh, we're going to talk about Star Wars, a little philosophy behind Star Wars. Also talk about some of the controversies Disney has gotten themselves into. Good guy, great observer of humanity. I love talking to my buddy, Stephen. We get to do that today on the program with Stephen Kent. But first, uh, we have to go down to Florida to Mar-a-Lago and talk about the former president of the United States, Donald J. Trump. He has sat for an interview with The Washington Post, uh, a wide-ranging interview, I would call it rambling, uh, covers a lot of different areas, um, but one in particular that we're going to focus in on. He made some comments about January 6th, uh, reading from The Washington Post, former President Donald Trump voiced regret Wednesday over not marching to the U.S. Capitol the day his supporters stormed the building. Let's pause real quick. Remember, he told them during the uh, infamous speech on the ellipse that he was going to go with them up to the Capitol. Of course, he didn't. He went to the White House and subsequently disappeared for hours on end. But back to the issue at hand, uh, Washington Post. And he defended his long silence during the attack by claiming House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and others were responsible for ending the deadly violence. Quote, I thought it was a shame, and I kept asking, why isn't she doing something about it? Why isn't Nancy Pelosi doing something about it? And the mayor of D.C. also. 
The Mayor DC and Nancy Pelosi are in charge, Trump said of the January 6, 2021 riot in a 45-minute interview with the Washington Post. Quote, this is Trump talking, I hated seeing it. I hated seeing it. And I said, it's got to be taken care of. And I assumed they were taking care of it. Remember that quote we're going to come back to in just a second. The 45th president has repeatedly deflected blame for the stoking of the attack with false claims that the 2020 election was stolen. And in the interview, he struck a defiant posture, refusing to say whether he would testify before a congressional committee investigating the January 6th assault. Trump said he didn't remember getting very many phone calls that day, and he denied removing call logs or using burner phones. This is a reference to the fact that the uh, materials passed over to the January 6th committee. There's about seven hours of that day of the call logs and the daily diary of the White House missing. Um, Trump also talked about a whole lot of other matters in this interview. You can read it at the Washington Post, but I want to focus on just what he said here about January 6th. There was no widespread election fraud. Everything that went on after the election was Donald Trump and his supporters trying to get around the fact that he lost the election. But on January 6th specifically, I want to come back to the key thing that he said here. He said, quote, I assumed they were taking care of it. Mr. Trump, you were the president. You were in charge that day. Your people and your team, and we don't know how much you participated in this, planned for this rally. They planned for this demonstration, and they planned for it to go up to the Capitol at the exact moment that Congress was certifying the election. This was all planned by your people, your supporters. You have, Mr. Trump, a very annoying habit of wanting to crow really loud about how you're in charge but turn around and talk about how you're not responsible for anything that you were ostensibly in charge of. And this is the latest example of it. There was one president in charge on January the 6th. His name was Donald Trump. He was at the White House. He had the full disposal of the government to make all kinds of decision making. Now, I'm just a guy that sits behind a microphone and talks, but I've read, I've studied, I've considered what happened on January the 6th. The one thing that's always bothered me the Capitol Police was left to their own devices that day, and there's probably criticism there. But every other federal agency, law enforcement agency, was not there for whatever reason. All those agencies answered to the executive. The Capitol Police answered to the legislative, therefore they weren't controlled. And they were the ones left. That makes me wonder. It makes me wonder many, many things. I don't think the January 6th committee is going to give us any good answers. I think they're going to give us a lot of tidbits. I think they're going to give us some raw data, but I don't think they're going to give you a reckoning on what happened on January 6th. That's going to be left to us. They probably should have done something else because a political body that was partially a victim in the crime shouldn't be doing the investigation, but we can talk about that some other time. But here's what we know. We know who the president of the United States was on January 6th. We know for a fact that he was nowhere to be found during this riot, he was at the White House with his feet propped up. We know that members of Congress, members of the Senate, members of his own administration, members of his own cabinet were calling and in contact with him, begging him to do something to stop this or to talk down his people. He finally did do it hours later and made a short video telling them that they had done what they came to do and to go home. That is inadequate. For Donald Trump to sit here all this time later and to say, why isn't somebody doing something about it? Why weren't they doing? I assumed they were taking care of it is blatant, blatant, purposeful deception. Now, maybe he's so delusional that he thinks he has no responsibility here. But if you want to sit behind the Resolute desk and you want the title and you want all those Air Force One trips 
and you want to talk about being the most powerful man in the world, you have to do the job. Part of the reason I can never really fully support Donald Trump had nothing to do with his politics, had nothing to do with his rhetoric. It's because I know the man, we had 70 years of book on him, how he conducts his businesses. He's never been accountable for anything. He has moral issues and moral failings. And some of our friends told us over and over again that those moral failings were part of the bargain and the good would outweigh the bad and you had to take your moral failings. You thought that? That's fine. You're allowed your decision. But I couldn't support that because there was going to be a time when those moral failings were going to hit a crisis of the moment and we were going to have problems because you have an immoral person in charge. That day was January the 6th. And even to this day, he still doesn't understand that he started it, he perpetuated it, he incubated it, and he did nothing to fix it once it started. And now he wants to sit down at Mar-a-Lago with his Diet Coke and talking to reporters and act like it wasn't his fault. This is how Donald Trump always does things. Blames others, takes all the credit, none of the accountability. That's just not good enough in a United States president. And it's not good enough, especially on a horrendous day of rioting and really horrific images. And that could have, should have probably been way worse than it was, like January 6th. I condemn Donald Trump for this. He still hasn't learned the lesson. He refuses to apologize for anything, which people seem to like. But I find it to be a moral failing, and I judge him accordingly. And I think history will as well. More Hertel right after this. Quick update on a story we've been covering for the last few weeks. Uh, Ketanji Brown Jackson has been confirmed to the Supreme Court, as everybody predicted. There wasn't much of a holdup at all in this confirmation. There was also a couple of Republicans that ended up voting for her. Uh, This turned out to be not too bad of a confirmation process. There was some real ugly stuff with the questioning over the sentencing guidelines for people charged with things like child pornography and so forth. But this was nowhere near like the Kavanaugh hearings or even the Amy Comey Barrett hearings. We told you from the beginning that this nomination would go through, so you needed to keep your powder dry and act accordingly. Don't get too wrapped up in it. It looks like most folks did that, uh, and she will now be on the court with her lifetime appointment. A couple lessons to learn on these appointments. Uh, The hearing process for the Supreme Court is supremely uh, broken and not very worth our time, frankly. Like most Senate hearings nowadays, they're televised, so they turn into soundbite fest for fundraising and things like that. You don't actually get information all that much out of it. Uh, the senators, both sides of the aisle here, because let's go over the last couple things. Um, even Chuck Schumer came out and said uh, the Democrats have not handled it well when they had the opposing party's nominees before them. That's a bit of an understatement. When we look back over some of the things that were said, there were things said in these hearings that should not have been said and should not have gone there. Our hope is that our uh, Congress critters that hold Senate seats might come to their senses and realize that they actually have a job to do here. And it goes beyond running for president, which too many of our senators think they're just biding time until they become president themselves. Spoiler alert, almost none of them will be. 
Um, but they need to calm down and do their actual jobs. There's some serious judicial questionings that need to be asked of these nominees. This goes for other things, too. No matter what kind of the hearing it is, too often they're turning into clown shows because they're too busy getting their viral clips for their fundraising or their campaign or trying to raise their profile up. It's not good for the country. It's not good governance. It's not good or fair to the nominees and the people that are testifying before them. And it just makes you look childish and foolish. We can see through what they're doing. And every once in a while, you know, blind squirrel finds a nut and the broke clock tells time twice a day. And you might get that viral moment you're looking for. But we should remind our senators, for the most part, we see what you're doing. You're posing, you're preening, you're using that dais not to govern, not to do good oversight, but for your own good and for your own glory. And we see you and we don't appreciate it. But of course, unless we punish them electorally, they're going to keep doing it. So anyway, uh, congratulations to Justice uh, Jackson. I uh, hope she does well for our country. We will call it as we see it on her rulings. When we agree with her, we'll say so. When we disagree with her, we'll say so, like we do with all the other justices. We'll see how she does on the court. Welcome to the Supreme Court, madam. We wish you and your family well. We hope you serve our country well. More Hertel right after this. back to herd tell uh every now and then believe it or not we actually get hate mail and people ask me questions like who's the crazy person who told you that you should do a show your day has come here he be uh our friend stephen kent a uh, longtime friend really good guy uh he's also an author of a book about star wars uh how the force can fix the world we'll talk about that a little bit but more than that he has uh, been all over the place he's got a right list of writing credits that anybody would be jealous of he's great at media stuff uh, been kind of a mentor and a good friend to me. Wanted to talk to you for a long time, buddy, because this is kind of your fault. So it's good to finally have you on the show, my friend. How are you? I'm doing very well. I've uh, I've heard tell that this show is doing great, and it's nice to be here. Other than the one episode YouTube clipped for us uh, doing something that we didn't actually do, of all things, you got to love AI. It's doing great and uh, really appreciate it. I do mean that. Thank you very much for uh, you helping me out with this thing. Uh, I've been there with the with the YouTube the YouTube AI censorship before. I, I was hosting a, a show last year called Right Now with Stephen Kent, and uh, you know if you even mentioned COVID nineteen, you were immediately teed up for some kind of uh, <laughs> of forcible edit of your content. It was a shocking experience. So I've been there. Yeah, they jacked us for of all the things, and because you know because we deal mostly on the right end of the spectrum, I get my head kicked in for not going along with some of the election conspiracy theories. They took mine down for supporting election conspiracy theories, and we didn't even discuss the election on that episode. So AI was having a bad day. I don't know what happened there, but these sorts of things happen. Let's just start right there, though. Culturally speaking, when we're talking about media, because you are a media expert, you're good at this stuff. I know you talk about it in the book and you talk about it with Star Wars, you know, being stoic. I'm kind of a, I've gotten a reputation for being a little bit stoic about this stuff. Let me f- ask you about it, though. Is there such a thing as being too laid back with it? Because I've been accused about that. You're my friend. You know me well. Is there such a thing as being too laid back about the culture and too much of, hey, it is what it is. It's their sandbox. We're playing into it. How do you think we should approach things like that? 
Yeah, well, there's absolutely a choice that every one of us needs to make as individuals with how much we are going to engage uh, in the world's problems. Uh, what I think that we have a, a particularly hard challenge of doing these days, though, is really determining which things are within our scope of influence and which things are not. Uh, one of the big trials of the mass media market landscape, the internet in general, social media connectivity, is that all things appear to be our problems at all times. When something is going on in bank Bangladesh, there is going to be some sort of trending topic on Twitter uh, and some sort of hashtag campaign that makes it feel like this is something that you need to be you know, laser focused on and thinking about for a couple of hours today. Uh, and then there are going to be instances where you know, a major company right, that's based in the United States uh, maybe does something that you disagree with. Uh, and then you have to decide whether or not this is something that is within your scope of influence. Uh, and a lot of people will look at folks who are a little less inclined to engage on issues and go, you know, these people are, are squishes or they're cowards. They're not up for the fight. Uh, I, I, I disregard and, and don't agree with that line of thinking. I think that we all owe it to ourselves and to our families and people who we love and have only limited emotional bandwidth for to be very choosy about the things that we get whipped up over. But that does leave us with responsibility for deciding what are the fights worth fighting. Um, there is no clear, easy answer for that. But when you mentioned the Stoic tradition, if you were to boil down uh, Greek and Roman Stoicism into one central idea, it is determining which things are within your control and identifying the things that are not and worrying less about the things that are not. Uh, this is something that is is sort of intertwined throughout the Star Wars universe and the Star Wars moral universe as like its main lesson for its characters is that the dark side is rooted in fear. And that fear, that belief that there are going to be bad things that happen, there are going to be bad people out there who need stopping, that your fear necessitates action. Uh, but sometimes that fear is a lie. Uh, and so our main task is being able to determine which things are the lies and which things are the, the fights worth fighting. Yeah, Stephen Kent joining us. You talked about this on your Substack. It's called This is the Way. That's a Mandalorian reference for those of you from Logan. You were talking about this on your Substack. You actually broke it down into an equation where you were talking about satisfaction and success and failure and making that into almost like a math equation and trying to, how would you say, maybe like get the mix of those three things right so that they come out right. It kind of goes mm -hmm. into that tradition, though, isn't it? It's like, well, if you know what, what satisfies you and you have a set of what a success is and then you know what a failure is because you didn't reach your success, that kind of gives you a, what do you want to call it, a balance point or a mooring point or a touch point mm -hmm. or a GPS point to know where you're at. Because like you said, the media environment now, it's coming at you all the time from all sides and it wants you to be immersed. That's the word you always hear is immersed in media. Can something like a, a just a simple equation like that of satisfaction, success, and failure, can that give you kind of a mooring to not get lost in all that? Yeah, well, that, that equation uh, fully is credited to Arthur Brooks, uh, formerly of the American Enterprise Institute and the author of a new book called From Strength to Strength, where he is basically outlining how our <clears throat> kind of consumer 
hyper-focused attention economy has recategorized happiness as what you have plus what you want, plus what you want, plus what you want. (laughs) Uh, And basically, you know, it's a never-ending stream of things that you want and your happiness is never fully achieved. Um, The equation that is offered instead is happiness equals what you have divided by what you want. Um, And so this basically points you in the direction of doing a pretty rigorous audit of the things that you want and being grateful for the things that you have. Happiness is not going to be found necessarily in a bucket list uh, of things that you want to do by time you die, uh, but more so in thinking about the things that you I don't know, not that you want to add to the list of the things that you've done, but what are the things that are left undone in your own life that already exist in your scope of influence? Not what are things that you need to go seek out and find to do, but what are things that are like right under your nose that need doing, um, that you have direct responsibility over? Yeah. um, You talk about it that way. One of the other traditions, we talked about the Stokes a little bit, uh, a lot of Star Wars, George Lucas pulled from Japanese culture, specifically the samurai culture, samurai movies. In fact, for the folks that don't know, A New Hope was, we'll be generous and call it an homage to a movie called The Hidden Fortress. It's got a lot of parallels to the great Kurosawa films. In fact, there's that famous picture of Kurosawa on set at The Empire Strikes Back, which is a really cool pop culture reference for folks that get it. Um the the Japanese samurai tradition, um, not diametrically opposed to the Stokes, their thing was preparedness. You know, you're always prepared to do your duty. And then there was a humility that came of that, that kind of quiet strength sort of thing. That kind of goes through the Star Wars stuff, too. And you wrote about that on This Is The Way also of one thing we can control, like you talked about before, is our own preparedness. We can't control, you know, war breaks out in Ukraine. We can't control inflation individually. But we can control our preparedness so when crisis does come up, we have some toolkit stuff to not get overwhelmed by it, don't we? Yeah, I mean, I think part of living in the modern world is feeling perpetually stressed out and burdened by a thousand inputs coming at you from every direction. And with that does not come empowerment. It really comes a, a huge creeping sense of powerlessness. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that I had picked up from the Star Wars story, and particularly as a Star Wars fan, very, very simple uh, piece of advice here that is shared by Qui-Gon Jinn in Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace when he's talking to Obi-Wan and Obi-Wan senses uh, sort of a looming darkness. He has a bad feeling about something, which is a, a classic Star Wars-ism. Uh, but he says to keep your mind here and now in the moment where it belongs. And Obi-Wan responds, you know, but Master Yoda said I should be mindful of the future not at the expense of the moment is what Qui-Gon responds. And I think that that for me has been something that has informed how I try to think a, <laughs> think a lot about news consumption. There is a cost to every story you read about war in Ukraine, about war crimes being committed uh, by Russian soldiers. There's a cost to those things. We sort of think about information as this pure 
you know, it's it's neutral. It's like things that we're we're putting in. It's just data we're consuming, uh, but it doesn't have any sort of cost for us in our day to day lives. That's that's not true. Uh, the amount of time that you spend thinking about things going on overseas is time that you are not spending thinking about making sure that your bank account is in order, making sure that you have trimmed uh, certain investments from your portfolio to be more lean and mean for a potentially bad economy. What is the point of watching CNBC and seeing how bad uh, the housing market could get in the next couple of months, unless you are actually calling your mortgage advisor to see about uh, getting a refinance rate. Like my point here is not to tell you to go buy gold or refinance your mortgage. Uh, it is just to say that there is not a neutral cost to inputting a ton of information about things going on around the world. You need to focus on the things that are actionable uh, and the things that are not lending to you having a better life, they are actually excess and indulgence and they need to be trimmed from your diet. Yeah. And there's one of those philosophical things that you find, you find it in the Stoics, you find it in Eastern philosophy as well is we don't do a real good job, especially as Americans, especially in the current media environment. We don't do a real good job with no, like we just don't know how to say no to incoming information or worse, we get into a rut where all we want is a certain kind of information is, is it, I hate to use this term because it's kind of nebulous, but people talk about mindfulness, but that's really the only term I can think of is you have to have a mindfulness of understanding where you're at because like, like I've pretty much cut out, even though it's kind of my day job, I've almost completely cut out network news in, in the US. Mm -hmm. I, I just had to, because I can't do what I need to do and watch that stuff all the time. Cause it just, yeah, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of a, it it's kind of a centerpiece of, of star Wars. You hear it in almost every single, uh, every single movie, uh, someone will say, search your feelings. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's, they're saying that because when you have emotional reaction to a thing, a person, um, you know, somebody, uh, makes a joke about your wife, right. Will Smith, uh, you know, the feelings that wash over you are not coming from nowhere. And the right thing to do, the mindful thing to do is to try to spend time reflecting on the why of those feelings, what is informing where that thing is coming from. Um, I think probably with, with Star Wars, the main thing that characters deal with in that book or in, the, in those movies, and I write about a lot in my book, is the fear of loss. So you have uh, Anakin Skywalker, who becomes Darth Vader, primarily is motivated by a fear of loss. He has bad dreams about losing people that he loves, and he wants to try to take certain actions to stop that from happening. Um, you know, Yoda in a, in a great scene in episode three tells him that he needs to focus on his attachments and learn to be okay with letting go, um, learn to, to let go of all that he fears to lose. Um, that is nice advice, but it's actually not very practical. It would be much more practical. <laughs> it would be much more practical for someone like Anakin to sit down with a, a medically uh, a licensed professional to actually talk to him about his really awful childhood where he was a slave, right? He grew up on Tatooine in slavery, uh, living a life where he had no autonomy, no ability to make choices. Every choice was made for him. His entire existence uh, was sort of marred by uh, his agency being completely taken away. And as an adult, 
go figure. He's obsessed with agency. He's obsessed with always being able to make sure that if something bad is going to happen or there's a possibility of something bad happening, that he has the ability to stop it. That doesn't come from nowhere. Someone like him needs to be mindful of his feelings and mindful of where he came from to inform who he is today. We all have to do that in our own lives and try to account for why do we feel the way that we feel when we read a certain story um, or we have a debate with our, our aunt or our uncle who's politically different than us? Why does it agitate us when they disagree with us or say something wild and out there? Yeah, talking to Stephen Kent. Yeah, even in a galaxy far, far away, a whole lot of the bad universe revolves around daddy issues. Who would have thought it? Uh, we're continuing with Stephen Kent. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more Star Wars, a little more philosophy. Uh, no way around it. Star Wars is owned by Disney. Disney's all over the news. So we'll see if any of this philosophy stuff will apply to that hot mess that's going on. Stephen Kent, our good friend, continues with us on her tell right up. tell uh enjoying talking to my friend Stephen ken he's here he is the author of how the force can fix the world lessons on life liberty and happiness from a galaxy far far away my copy's right there uh it was pretty cool going in a bookstore with the kids and saying hey i know that book i know the guy that wrote it and uh, the kids like the book too by the way it's great pick it up and read it okay so you wrote that you held up star wars as an example of here's some good philosophical stuff everybody loves star wars we know the parent company of Star Wars that owns it now is famously Disney for good and ill. I think more good than people really give it credit for. I think you know, overall they're doing a decent job with it. But Disney, the parent company, is all over the news now for cultural issues. It's not the first time. Uh, you tell me because you wrote a book saying, hey, here's something I want to hold up as a standard. And then something that's related to it comes out in the news like that. That's got to be a little awkward to have to navigate, doesn't it? Honestly, it is a little bit awkward, and it's it's kind of one of those externalities that uh, you can't really anticipate in life uh, when you're writing a, a book sort of talking about the, the relatively timeless virtues of a story like Star Wars that has been around with us for 40 plus years uh, since 1977, was, you know, existed independently under George Lucas and Lucasfilm uh, for a long time before being purchased by Disney and sort of put into their, their list of offerings. Uh, but I guess in living sort of the, the main virtues of the book, uh, you can't focus too much on the things that are not within your control. Uh, look, it's, it's not a great situation for Disney to be participating in the polarization of America. Uh, we've got a major issue going on right now where essentially now even America's internet is starting to split along political lines. Uh, a couple, a couple internet theorists that I follow have been calling this the splinter net, uh, just a complete breakup of the ecosystems that we all operate and live in. Uh, and Disney, by and large, has existed in the ecosystem for 
um, you know, 50 plus years as a media company designed to appeal to the average median American. Uh, but the Splinternet does not appeal to the average median American. <laughs> the Splinternet and all these, uh, these different sort of trends uh, where media companies are going for targeted niche ideological audiences uh, is not about trying to bring together as many people under one tent as possible. It's about segmentation. I'm worried that Star Wars could absolutely fall into that category, uh, given enough time and given enough ideological meddling uh, by creators within the Disney Corporation, um, that this story, which has transcended four generations um, or, or woven together four generations of fans with shared values and like a really cool, just like theologically driven, um, you know, philosophical story um, could be marred by identity politics uh, and sort of the, the red versus blue flame war that we see playing out uh, on TV every single day. Let, let me bring it to you this way, because Star Wars has changed because you think about 77 this big blockbuster movie really wasn't a thing. Jaws and Star Wars, those were kind of the first couple of real blockbuster movies. It kind of made its own path. I'm one of those tweeners. I, I vaguely remember the original movies. We mostly watched them on cable reruns. I came to learn uh, Star Wars through the books uh, before the episode one, before we had this thing called the internet back in the 90s, the dark ages, folks probably thought it was. So I learned to love it through the books. I went to episode one, two, and three in the theater as a young adult, I was 19, 20 years old, working a summer camp. We all got the night off and all went together. I remember going to episode one in the theater. It's like, we're going to get to see Star Wars in the theater because we were yeah. too young to do that. And I got to do what I never thought I was going to do. I got to go to um, episode seven with my kids. And I got to sit in a the theater and watch a Star Wars film with my kids who were teenagers by that time. I don't know. Isn't part of the story here that Star Wars has changed and adapted the internet world, you know, we, we did away with the books uh, that got pushed to the side. The way movies have changed now, I, you don't really have the big blockbusters now because they split time. They come out straight on things. You have the Disney streaming series. Isn't part of this is just Star Wars is such a big thing that it's going to have to adapt to culture. And I don't mean the cultural debate. I just mean the way culture works now. They do seem to be adapting it somewhat with the serials and things like this as well, because they made a yeah. major they made a major turn away from the movies and focused on these serials and the series have been really, really good. Yeah. I mean, Star Wars Lucasfilm is absolutely <clears throat> playing in sort of an a la carte approach to media, recognizing that in the streaming environment, there are not as many large cultural events uh, in the modern world that we're going to share in theaters and on couches across the country at one single time. There's not going to be many of these moments where a TV show has a finale uh, and 60 plus percent of the country is all sitting on their couches at the same time watching. That just doesn't happen anymore. And, and the same is absolutely the case when it comes to what's playing in the movie theaters. Uh, Star Wars has come out as sort of an interesting time for Disney where they tried to do a uh, sequel trilogy, episodes seven, eight, and nine. And you can say that they performed um, financially fine. By and large, they did what blockbuster movies are supposed to do, which is bring in several, you know, tens of millions of dollars. Um, but you can look at the cultural impact that those movies and say that it has declined. What has not 
uh, had that sort of mediocre, lukewarm cultural impact has been their streaming shows. Like The Mandalorian is the prime example of a, a Star Wars Disney run TV series uh, that has changed the game, made a cultural impact and put a Baby Yoda bumper sticker on almost every car in America. Um, that's what Star Wars does. That's what Star Wars is supposed to be all about. Um, but as soon as you continue to segment your audiences, uh, you're going to sort of have some less impact over time. The next thing up in Disney's offerings is the Obi-Wan Kenobi show on Disney+. Plus. Um, previously, most people were purely excited about that show. But now what the culture wars have given us uh, in the form of, you know, kind of another round of conservative boycotts against Disney+, Plus is this sort of contention that these major companies, these major media corporations are basically asking you to stomach the the kind of reprehensible, like far left, very progressive um, and radical ideas that they put into shows for young children. Uh, and at the same time, uh, accept that because they're going to off also offer good programming for the the mass pop the mass public in the form of an Obi Wan Kenobi show or the next Avengers series. Uh, that's a real choice that you have to make. How much do you accommodate things that you find um, to be reprehensible uh, with things that you find to be obviously good? Um, I think it is the individual responsibility of every person in your audience to sort of gut check what matters most to them. Do you want to be able to watch Obi-Wan while also walling off other programs that your children might watch? Maybe you do, maybe you don't. Um, But I do understand why people find that to be such a a tense, you know, personal and moral conflict. Yeah, because we've talked about it when the business model is audience capture, and we've talked about it on this program a lot because that's how the news media works now. They work towards audience capture. They, you know, it's tough for people to say because they feel like they, everybody feels like they own Star Wars because they're so invested. And it's like you and me, we've had Star Wars all of our lives and we want our kids. They do. To have and, and we are in many ways like owners of this story. I mean, this, right. this, this story, this franchise is not like Marvel. Marvel does outperform it at the box office. It outperforms it uh, in streaming and in merchandising sales with younger generations. But Marvel has never been like Star Wars as a property, where it is almost this sort of mythological tale that is shared within families and in households, where the figures, like the characters of Star Wars, they exist in a completely other realm. Uh, People do not talk about Thanos the way that they talk about Darth Vader. Thanos does not have the kind of pop cultural relevance um, as the the dark side entity that exists inside of all of us, um, as does any of the Sith characters in Star Wars. Star Wars is just different. they need to protect that. They need to protect and be incredibly um, coveting of that responsibility to handle that IP. I mean, George Lucas handed it over uh, a little reluctantly because he did feel that Disney was the best place for that to live. I guess I just, I, I, I sympathize with people who feel like they cannot trust it to be handled uh, with that kind of care so that it is for everybody because Star Wars is something that does live inside the consumers and the fans. Um, you mentioned the dissolution of the books. That was kind of one thing that disenchanted a lot of fans early on in, in Disney's acquisition was that the books were were kind of removed from canonical legend and moved into a specific category called legends. Um, 
I am of the mind that this was an overreaction by fans because the Star Wars expanded universe, you know, the extended universe stories, it was like anarchy. It was like fans writing fan fiction, getting published deals, uh, and then sort of having uh, their books out there as possible uh, possible futures and possible stories within Star Wars. Uh, I feel like all Disney did was clean up uh, what was canon and what was not. But uh, I understand that the the central appeal to Star Wars is that it sort of lives with the fans to decide uh, certain things about what happens in the future of the story. Yeah, well, uh, there was some fan fiction, but a lot of that Timothy Zahn stuff keeps showing up in the different stuff in the Clone Wars episodes. Yeah, they're, they're canonizing they're it. They're borrowing it. And yeah. they, they rehired Timothy Zahn. They had Timothy Zahn come back in and rewrite Brilliant the Thrawn writer. trilogy. Yeah. But he they had Timothy Zahn write it so that it fits into their other TV shows and movies. And, and that's better. We should want Thrawn to be involved like as a, a major character from the old books. We should want Thrawn to be involved in the Mandalorian series and in the animated shows. But to do that, you have to set the record straight on what is the canonical timeline for the Thrawn story. So I, I thought it was like the right way to balance that by saying, look, the old Thrawn stories are great inspiration for this character, but we're going to have Timothy Zahn come back in and rewrite when Thrawn's story happens and what the details are of it. Yeah. And I'm a huge fan of the Thrawn, the Hair to the Empire trilogy. If you've never read it, you don't have to be a Star Wars fan. It is just, it's widely regarded really high-end science fiction it's excellent stuff go read it on your own uh but i'm glad they brought thrawn back because i'm one of those guys i fell in love with the star wars not from the original movies but from the books i'm one of them uh we could talk this all day but i gotta let you go uh stephen kent a good friend of ours i've appreciated your friendship let folks know where they can follow you on your social media and what else you have going on until we get you back on the show again and we're not going to take eight months to do it this time i promise yeah. Best way to get in touch with me is to find me on Twitter at Stephen underscore Kent eight, nine, and go out and pick up my book, how the force can fix the world lessons on life, liberty, and happiness from a galaxy far, far away. Yep. I got it right here for uh, the YouTube audience. My friend, you do great work. I appreciate your time. Let's have you back soon, my friend. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks. Hertel, uh, updating two stories that we've covered over the last few months. Uh, Truth Social is doing exactly what we predicted it will do. Fail miserably, spectacularly. Well, not really spectacularly. It's more of a you know implosion of incompetence. Uh, Devin Nunez, you remember that name? He was in Congress for a long time. In fact, if the uh, Republicans end up taking the House back, he would have been in line for a very powerful head of a committee. Instead, he left Congress and decided to head up Truth Social and now he's embarrassing himself on news networks. Uh, he was on Fox News uh, trying to hawk up and talk up Truth Social, which he is now heading. Now, last time we saw him, he was losing a lawsuit to an Internet Cal parody account for libel that he lost spectacularly. He's racking up another L here. Uh, just a few parts of the quotes here. Uh, Twitter is kind of a ghost town, he says. There is not very much activity over at Twitter right now, especially when you compare it to a site like ours. Our interactions are already beating Twitter. 
<laughs> this, folks, this is just, I, I don't even know where to start with this. This is so laughably bad. Um, as we've d- accounted for, the reason these alternate platforms that can't stand Twitter or whatever, the reason they fail is because they're missing the one thing all those people really want. They need somebody to fight against. They go to these new platforms like a parlor or a getter or whatever the case may be. They turn into echo chambers because they're the only ones there. It's kind of hard to own the libs when there ain't no libs around to own. Now, I personally am on Twitter. I'm not going to leave Twitter. I'm going to stay on Twitter because that's where the fight is. That's where the action is. That's where everybody's at. That's the arena of ideas. That's where the newsmakers are at. That's where people like me can interact with them. So I'm going to stay right there, good, bad, or indifferent. And they just haven't quite figured out yet, or they're at least not honest enough with themselves to admit the truth. They need the people they hate more than the people they hate need them, especially when it goes to being a business model. So I don't know what uh, Devin Nunez is smoking, but it's really, really good stuff because for him to believe what he's peddling here, he would have to be nuts or completely sold out to it. Uh, You can pick your poison as to which one that is, but true social is failing. It's failing spectacularly. I've, predict it won't even exist in another couple months we will see what happens uh but it is not anywhere near going to take over for twitter um in fact donald trump this is his platform he's not even using it actions not words folks tell you every single time what you really want to know and devin nunez well he lost the cow now he's losing in his role as ceo of trump media we'll see how long he lasts before the boss finds a scapegoat and starts looking devin nunez's way more hotel right after this Uh, welcome back to hotel you know we always try to end on a little bit of a good note or a happier tone. This isn't super happy, but it is amazing. You remember the movie Schindler's List won every Oscar there is, one of the really powerful films of all time, Steven Spielberg's uh, magnum opus, really, on the Holocaust. It is a striking film. One of the most striking parts of it is the entire movie is in black and white, except for one part in two different scenes of deportation and one in the camps. There's a little girl wearing a red coat, and her red coat is this striking, jarring splash of color in the movie. It is an artistic choice. It is one of the seminal images from that movie, and it's something that people think about frequently. Well, keep that in mind when you read this, because Aliwia Dabrowski, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, she's 32 years old, appeared in the 1993 Oscar-winning age just three years old at the time, her iconic red coat providing the only color in the black and white film I'm reading from the UK Mirror. And the actress who played that, she's turned up now. Uh, Listen to this. It appears Olivia from Krakow, Poland, has been inspired by Schindler and is now helping families escape Putin's armies in Ukraine. Speaking on Instagram, she informed followers she was coordinating a group of volunteers who are supporting refugees as they arrive at the Polish border. Already, she has found home for 10 families and ensured hundreds more refugees are transported to cities in Poland. In a photo she shared with her followers, she's wearing a high-vis jacket with coaches behind her. The uh, European coaches, they mean buses. Uh, in an Instagram live stream, she said, I don't wait for things, and no one from our group of volunteers wants to hear thank you. We just do our job. There's pictures involved here. Quote, the people we 
people need help and we give them help. I really care about every single person on the border. I found a home for 10 families. Also, I can't count how many transports for refugees from the borders to mostly Krakow and other places in Poland. I will do everything I can. I will never forget these people, these faces, these eyes. I will never forget what I've seen. You can't prepare for that. You can only imagine there will be suffering people, children, old people, the sick. She then added, there's only silence on the border, no crying, no screaming. She went on, they scream inside, and this is what I can't forget. And as if I need to do this as the girl in the red coat, let it be. Former actress is working on a project alongside a charitable foundation to get funding for the displaced refugees. She said, quote, helping at the border is one thing, but the people here need our help. They need homes. They need work. They need schools for their children. Wish me luck because there's a lot of work. I'm tired. I'm exhausted, but I'm still full of energy to help. Um, the 32-year-old has paused her own copywriting business while she helps the victims of the crisis. In Schindler's List, directed by Steven Spielberg, Schindler noticed Olivier walking through the scared crowds through the liquidation of the Krakow ghetto in 1943. Her red coat stands out among the gray on the screen, and he later sees the child dead on a cart carrying bodies. It's a striking image, but it's a little bit of a happier ending. The actress doing good work in the real world uh, with Harkins back to those who helped during one of the darkest periods in human history and something we should all take a lesson from. That'll do it for Herd Tell on this Friday. We hope you have great weekend plans coming up and we hope you enjoy it until we see you again Monday. Remember, we'll do the twice on Sunday show. Uh, that'll be out on Sunday morning. We had some amazing interviews this week. Make sure you don't miss that show with all the clips on it. We'll review all five interviews we did during the week on Sunday. Also, if you've missed any of our long-form podcasts, there's over 36 of those on there now. You can go on the YouTube page and or any of the podcasting platforms. They're on there. Also, the Good Talks portions, just the full interviews. If you want to listen to any of them, you missed it, or we have a recurring guest and you missed their previous appearances and you want to get familiar with them, those are all on there. They're under Good Talks. Very proud of those. So until we see you again, we hope you and yours are well. We hope you're well fed. And we'll talk to you on Monday on Hertel. All the music on Hertel is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. Hopefully this is the last time you hear this ad, because with Chime Checking Account, Features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and getting paid up to two days early with direct deposit, you can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade to spend more time listening to your favorite podcasts. Or at least grab yourself an extra morning latte this month. Join millions of Chime members who work on their financial progress with fee-free overdraft and no monthly fees. When you find new ways to save, you can reach your financial goals easier and still have the occasional treat. Take more control of your finances and say goodbye to monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com slash goals24. That's chime.com slash goals24. Chime feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to chime.com slash disclosures for details. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.